You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, you are merciful to us to give us your word, and it is our desire that our hearts and our minds might be inclined to the truth and to the light, and that you would, by your spirit, help us to hear the voice of God in the pages of Scripture. Help us to think rightly about these things so that we might render to you a heart that is primed for obedience and worship, and may you be glorified here through our study of Scripture. It is in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. Let's begin with a question this morning. As soon as the humming stops, let's begin with a question this morning. Have you ever had to deal with a government bureaucracy? <laughs> you laugh as if that's a silly or stupid question. Of course, we all have had to deal with a government bureaucracy, haven't we? Do you, do you like it? Do you enjoy dealing with it? This is tax time. So, of course, we're all primed and in the mood of, of uh, giving our taxes to the government, filing our taxes and making sure that everything's filled out in triplicate and duplicate and every other kit and we send it into the government and make sure that we all have it right and then hope and pray that our name doesn't get flagged and we get pulled for an audit and have to be brought before some review board to plead our case and to produce all of our receipts and all of that other good stuff. We, we all love government bureaucracies, don't we? You can't even breathe in the United States of America without running afoul of some government bureaucracy or some government official anywhere, somewhere. If you want to buy a piece of land, you have to deal with at least 12 different government agencies. If you want to build on that piece of land, you have to deal with another 12 different government agencies. If you want to put in even a driveway to access the piece of land in order so that you can build on it, that's another half a dozen different yet government agencies. Government bureaucracies tell us how much money we can make, how much money we can save, how much money we can spend, how much we can spend of our money and on what, and what it is that we can buy. They tell us what type of light bulbs we can buy, what type of toilets we can buy, what type of gas mileage our car has to get, how much gas we can buy, what types of gas we can buy for our car. They tell us how much pepperoni should go onto a pepperoni pizza and how much cheese is required before you can call it a cheese pizza, and on and on it goes to the point of, of nauseating debilitation. Even the word bureaucracy conjures up in our minds forms filled out in triplicate and taxes and regulations and rules and stipulations and hoops that you have to jump through and people that you need to deal with and, and it, redundancies and government agencies on top of government agencies that strip life of all of its joy and, and funness to live and, and just make everything miserable that we do from the minute that we wake up on the time we go to, to bed, right? Now personally, I don't care one way or the other about government bureaucracies. I can't even say that with a straight face. Because all of us do care about government bureaucracies. They say, Jim, why is it that you're bringing this up? Why would you start a sermon like this? Did you run afoul of a government official this last week? Did you have some government official visit the new facility and tell you what it is that you have to do this last week? You have some axe to grind, something you need to get off your chest? I actually have a shed full of axes to grind, but that's not why I bring this up. I bring this up because this is the very next subject that Solomon addresses in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Now read these verses with me. Verse 8, If you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now one of the challenges with preaching through this passage is that if I 
if I'm going to deal with this passage like I deal with every other passage that we address in Ecclesiastes and Scripture that we are in the habit of dealing with here on a Sunday morning, if I'm going to deal with it in that type of depth and, and explain it and illustrate it and talk about modern-day equivalences and kind of bring the principles into our day, there's almost no way of doing it like I've done every other passage of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't make it sound like I'm up here for the next 40 minutes just ripping on government and government officials. Now, I can't avoid that, and that, that's not my intention because that, that is not what the pulpit is for. That's what Facebook is for. So if you want to hear me do that, follow me on Facebook. But that's not what the pulpit is for. And that's not the goal of this at all. Really, the goal of this is to simply see what it is that Solomon says and to, to realize that the observation that he is making 3,000 years ago is as true today as it has ever been. Because this is the human condition. This is what plagues life in a fallen world. And Solomon is going to observe here something about the, the poor in verses 8 and 9 and the, how they are oppressed and who it is that does the oppression. So we're going to talk about that because here's the bottom line. Solomon is describing poor people being oppressed by government officials. Now, that happens today. Rich people are oppressed by government officials. Middle class people are oppressed by government officials. In our day, everybody is oppressed by some government officials. That, that's the reality. So this is not a, this is not a rip on government. This is not an argument for small government, though I would make that case from this passage. It's not an argument for my particular form of government or my particular view of taxation or anything like that. This is just, these are the observations that Solomon makes. So we'll do our duty of looking at the observations that Solomon makes and then see how it is illustrated today and how we see this true in our world today. We're just going to be looking at verses eight and nine to deal with the, the poor and the oppressed. Now there is a connection with what follows, but not necessarily with what came before in this passage. Verses 1 to 7 deals with our approach to God and how God is to be approached in our sacrifices and our praying and our making and keeping of vows. And we looked at the principles and the wisdom that Solomon offers on worship in those verses. But then in typical wisdom literature fashion, Solomon moves on to another subject that is not necessarily related to the subject that came before. You see this in the Proverbs a lot. You see uh, in, in Proverbs, the author will deal with the virtues of uh, having a wife and then the virtues of a good friend and then the, the right use of our mouth and then the right use of riches and then an observation about poverty and then something else about the king and his heart and, and on and on from one subject to another in sort of a scattered, scatterbrained, at least it seems, fashion. That's kind of how wisdom literature flows. And that's very similar to what Solomon is doing here. Worship in verses 1 to 7 and now he kind of turns a corner and talks about something else. The oppression of the poor by government bureaucrats. That's what he's describing in verses 8 and 9. And now it is also connected somewhat with what, with what follows. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 of chapter, in chapter 5, Solomon turns his attention to money and the love of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. And on he goes on the subject of wealth and riches, the abuse of wealth, the misuse of wealth, um, the, the vexation of wealth, the problems with being rich. From verse 10 of chapter 5 all the way through the end of verse 9 of chapter 6, he spends, he has a lot of to say on the subject of wealth and fixing our hope on wealth. So there is a connection here in terms of the themes, the poor people in verses 8 and 9, and then wealth in verses 10 and following all the way through into the middle of chapter 6. In, cha in verses 8 and 9, Solomon describes those who are oppressed, the poor, and he describes their oppressors, bureaucrats. Now, it may be that in verse 10, when Solomon talks about those who love money and are greedy and misuse their money, that he has in mind the same group of people that he mentioned in verses 8 and 9, the bureaucrats, the officials, who because they love money, oppress those who are poor in order to get that money. So there may be a connection there between verses five, uh, 8 and 9 and verses 10 and following. So having set up that all of those prerequisites, let's take a look at the passage in verses 8 and 9. We'll first look at the oppressed 
And then we will look at the oppressors. First, the oppressed in verse 8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and righteousness in the province. Now Solomon there is describing those who are poor and how they are oppressed and by whom they are oppressed. Now what's interesting here is that Solomon himself had never known poverty. And he talks a lot about poverty in this passage and in the next chapter as well. But Solomon had never known poverty. You realize that? He was, he was born to a king. And by the time Solomon was born, David had established the kingdom and David was the wealthiest man in the land. And Solomon took over from his father David and expanded the influence and the increase of David's kingdom and was even richer than his father David and the increase of his, of, of his borders was even larger than under David. Solomon was an immensely wealthy man and he had never known anything except the luxury of the ability to buy or have anything that his heart desired at any time that his heart desired. If he wanted it, he could have it, he could just purchase it. He was born to a king in a wealthy house. He had never known a day of oppression in his life nor had he ever known a day of want or poverty in his life. But what Solomon is speaking of here, he has observed from a distance, and he is in a position to give us some wisdom, particularly on the vexations of wealth, which he does in verses 10 and for the next chapter. Solomon actually has far more to say about wealth and its abuses and its, uh, and its, and its toils than he does have to say about poverty, probably because he knew firsthand the abuses of wealth and what it brought. So he had never known a day of poverty, he had never known a day of oppression, but though he had never endured these things, he does observe these things from a distance. And this is not the first time that Solomon has talked about oppression. Turn back to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, because this is how he started chapter 4, you may remember. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Do you remember that lament? I saw the tears of the oppressed... So they are alone. They have no one to comfort them. He says that twice. And then he describes how it's better off to have never been born than to have been born under such oppression. And he says on the side of their oppressors was what? Power. Well, now I think that in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we're starting to understand what type of power the oppressors had and who it is that is using that power. Who is it? It's the officials who are being watched over by officials, and there are still yet higher officials over them. That's what verse 8 is about. So he has mentioned oppression before, he has talked about how the oppressors have power, and now we're getting a glimpse of what type of power that they use and abuse. So that's the oppressed, they are the poor. Now Solomon, I want you to notice a careful observation here. Solomon is not arguing that oppression causes poverty. He doesn't make that connection in the text. Notice that. He's not saying that all poverty is the result of being oppressed, and he's not saying that all of those who are poor have been oppressed and that that's what brought their poverty. He's only saying that what he has observed is that the poor are oppressed and most of the time it is the poor who are oppressed because they lack the means to resist or to protect themselves against that oppression. So most oppression does happen of poor people, but that is not necessarily the cause of the poverty in this situation, nor is oppression the primary cause of poverty in our world. And it's important to make note of that and to, to observe that because the narrative that we are sold today is that if you are poor, it is because you have been oppressed. And that there is no other cause of poverty. It's just that you've been oppressed. You've been kept down by the man. And if you hadn't been kept down by the man, or oppressed by the 1%, or oppressed by big oil, or oppressed by Walmart, or oppressed by whoever it is, the only reason that you don't have what you want to have and that somebody else has is because they've oppressed you and taken it from you illegally by force. And so we are told that we are to aim our guns at white heterosexuals, or white males, or white people, or this class, or that class, or the 1%, or big business, or whatever it is. 
Oppression is not the cause of poverty. It is a cause of poverty, but it's not necessarily the cause of poverty, nor the only cause of poverty. Scripture identifies all kinds of things that cause poverty. Like, for instance, laziness. I'm not saying that everybody who is poor is lazy. eh? I'm not painting with that broad brush. But we cannot deny that laziness is a cause of poverty. Some people are poor because they will not work. Not because they can't work, because they won't work. And Scripture describes this. Scripture describes the sluggard who goes out and he sows his seed, but then along comes harvest, and he's too lazy to go out into the field and harvest anything, and so he goes without, and he is brought to ruin. Some people are poor because they're lazy. Some people are poor because they're foolish. Foolishness is a cause of poverty in Scripture. Proverbs describe a man who spends all of his money on on wine and women and song and entertainments and uh, and frivolous items, and the Proverbs say such a man will be brought to poverty. If you take what you have and you spend it foolishly and unwisely and abuse it, you will lose it and you will be brought to ruin, the Proverbs say. Not only is laziness and foolishness a cause of poverty, but sometimes the sovereign removal of blessings by God is a cause of poverty. Just as God gives to us certain material blessings, He in His sovereignty for His purposes can take away and remove those blessings, and He has done us no wrong in doing so. But God Himself for His own purposes can take us from riches into poverty by His own doing for whatever reason He might do that. Just like He did with Job. He took everything that Job had, so Job had nothing. And then guess what God did? He gave it all more back to Job and even and even increased what Job had had before. But sometimes poverty can come about by the sovereign providence of God as he simply removes blessings for whatever purposes he determines. That can cause poverty. Also, some people are just content to not have more than they have, and so they don't desire more than they have, and they go without. I know people who are skilled and able to make far more money than they make every day, every week, every month, but they don't employ their gifts and abilities in those things because they don't desire more. So they're content with where they're at. Some people are content in their poverty. They don't desire to be rich. They don't desire to improve their condition. Differing abilities can be a cause of poverty. I'm never going to be an NFL quarterback. I never will be. I will never secure a $5 million a year contract for throwing a ball. Can't happen. I will never play center for the Los Angeles Lakers. Can never do that because I can barely dribble a ball. I'm six foot tall. I have not been given the mental or the physical capacities to do those things. I will never found a software company worth billions of dollars. I will never create a a mobile phone app worth millions of dollars. I will never lead a Fortune 500 company. I have not been given the physical or the mental abilities to do these things. I don't resent those to whom God has given those gifts. I don't resent them for that, nor do I resent their use of those gifts in making tons of money. I don't resent that. But there are all kinds of causes for poverty, not only oppression, but also all of these other things. So, does oppression cause some poverty? Yes, it does. But so do all of these other things. Solomon is not arguing that the poor are poor because they are oppressed. He is arguing that they are oppressed because they are poor. That isn't a distinction worth making. So, well, who are these people who are the oppressed? They are the poor. And what, how, in what way are they oppressed? They are denied justice and they are denied righteousness in the province. Look at verse 8. You see the oppression of the poor, the denial of justice and righteousness in the land. Now the word justice is a legal word that was used in a court setting, in a legal setting. It described vindication or being made, something being made right or receiving a just and fair decision from a court in a court setting. Uh, so these words, justice and righteousness, there is some overlap. Even in our own language, there's overlap. There's also overlap in the Hebrew meaning of these words. And in the Greek equivalent, there is overlap in the terms justice and righteousness because these things are related. So justice has to do with something that might be handed down by legal authorities or people who are in positions of, of instituting justice or making sure that justice is done. 
And righteousness refers to that which is fair or right or uh, some sort of a vindication, just an equitable treatment is kind of the idea behind this word righteousness. Now, these obviously overlap a little bit. When these things are denied, this oppresses the poor. Now, the poor are oppressed when those who have it within their ability and within their authority and responsibility to ensure that everybody is treated equally before the law, when they are not treated equally before the law, when justice is denied and righteousness is suppressed in the land, the poor are oppressed. So if you want to... Well, let me back up. In 3,000 years of human history, we have not corrected this issue. You realize that? You read through the Old Testament, you know what you'll find? God continually calling out the judges in the land of Israel for their abuse of power and their unwillingness to see the justices done in the land, for the injustices and the illegalities of how they used the law and they took bribes and they perverted justice and they didn't give justice to the widow and to those who were, who, who were robbed. God continually called out the nation for not ensuring that justice was done when it should have been. And in the 3,000 years since Solomon's time, we have not solved this problem. We understand what justice should look like. It, it, it's Lady Justice holding the law, holding the scales. She is blindfolded, so she cannot see your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your history, your nationality, none of that. And she, she determines what is just based upon what the law says without any exterior, um, any exterior considerations concerning who you are, where you come from. That's the ideal. But we have never had that ideal in this country, and we will never have that ideal in this world on this side of the establishment of the, King of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's when justice will be done, and that's what we really are longing for. So there is this ideal that we have of what justice should look like, but when justice is not done and justice does not exist in the land, who bears the responsibility for that? You know who bears the responsibility for that? The people who are charged and given positions of authority and power within government structures to ensure that justice is done and that things are equitable and things are right and things are fair. That's who bears the responsibility. So now who is doing the oppressing? Look at the end of verse 8. Looked at the oppressed, now look at the oppressors. Solomon says, when you see this denial of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be shocked at the sight. Don't be awed by this. Why is that? Why should we not be shocked? Because one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. What is Solomon describing? If he's not describing a government bureaucracy, then there is absolutely no way that a government bureaucracy could be described with language. One official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. And so when you see the denial of justice and the denial of fairness and equity in the land, don't be shocked by this. Listen, when a Christian baker is fined out of existence for not baking a cake for a ceremony that they find morally objectionable, while another baker of a different religious affiliation or a different sexual orientation can deny business and services to anybody they want under any conditions they want, for whatever reason they want, and nobody bats an eye, but the Christian baker is pilloried in the public square and fined out of existence and made a, the criminal du jour. Don't be shocked at this. We're angered by it. Don't be shocked by this. What do you expect to happen? You see, the NFL can determine that it is going to not host Super Bowls in cities that have policies against 40-year-old men going to the bathroom next to your 9-year-old daughter. But a Christian florist cannot determine whom they are going to give their services to or what, what ceremonies or what functions they're going to do flower arrangements for. Do you understand the new morality? Do you understand the double standard? What would Solomon say? Don't be shocked by this. Why? Because one official watches over another official and their officials over them. 
And so justice gets lost in the layers of this bureaucracy. Justice falls in between the cracks and it gets lost. Why? Because in a situation like that, we have officials being watched over by other officials and still higher officials over them. The only thing that the officials care about is the other officials. That's what it means, that they're watching out for one another. Just like crows do not pluck out the eyes of other crows, so the bureaucrats do not challenge other bureaucrats or exploit other bureaucrats. They're on the same side. They're watching out for one another. You got my back, I got your back, and every official knows that they have a vested interest in watching the back of the other official because the other official is watching their back. And so what does this, what does this result in? It results in justice being denied and righteousness not being done in the land because all that the right, all that the officials are concerned about is not justice and righteousness, not fairness and equity, not what is right and true and good, but only in watching out for the other officials. So don't be shocked. We're angered, but don't be shocked. Because what do you expect? And there are some people who think that the answer to all of this oppression is to have another level of oversight of officials who are watching out those officials to make sure that the officials watching the officials who watch the officials who watch the officials who are being watched that they will ensure that justice is done, that, that they will be sort of an independent council above everybody else making sure that none of the officials go bad or turn bad and the, and the justice and righteousness is done. Now what could possibly go wrong with such an answer? What could possibly go wrong in such a situation? Can you suspect anything that might happen as a result of doing that? Maybe perhaps that the officials who watch the officials watching the officials watching the officials might someday be corrupt and look out for their own interests? Why does this happen? It happens because we are sinners. And getting a government post, being appointed to a position of oversight, does not turn men into angels. It doesn't change them whatsoever. It just gives them access to power and abilities to oppress that they did not have before. We are wicked people. We are fallen. Our hearts are depraved. Our hearts are darkened. And the ring of power is more than mortal men can bear. So that is why, I argue, against not giving that power to individuals to begin with. Because we are sinners, and because being appointed to those positions does not change men into angels, just because they have a position of power, they ought not to be given that position of power. We are better off to not have that. Because the, the confines and the constraints of human government are, are established for us in Scripture, and they are very small, to reward the good and to punish evildoers. Say, what else? Give us another list of things. No, that's it. Reward good and to punish evildoers. That is what government is called to do. And when government gets out of those clearly defined biblical parameters, you have issues. Then you have people being trampled. Then you have people being oppressed. When government, one government official watches over another government official. Have you ever experienced this happening? Let's say you call the IRS and you have a question. Now, I'm not trying to rag on the IRS, though I could. I'm just going to give you an example. Let's say you call, this is hypothetical, of course, because I mean, probably nobody here has had this experience, but just in case you have, you can relate to this. You call the IRS and you have a tax question because it's tax season. And so you go through the whole phone tree and you finally find an agent who can answer your question. They're in Salt Lake City. And you ask them their question and they answer the question. You write all of that down. You hang up the phone. No sooner you hang up the phone, you realize, you know, the, the answer to this question kind of raises a related question. And I had another question that was kind of attached to that that I didn't really get the answer to. Now i got to call back and go through all of it again. So you call back and this time you get some other official who's in Oklahoma City. 
And that official, after you explain the whole situation, they give you an entirely different answer than the other official did just five minutes before. You ever had that happen? Now listen, when you file that paperwork and you get it wrong, who's going to jail? You or the official? I don't want to burst your bubble, but you're going to jail. You're going to be doing prison ministry from inside all because you got that wrong. Now you can appeal to that official's official who's watching that official. You can issue an appeal, but you're going to be talking to their supervisor who's in the same office and their kids play on the same softball team and they probably hang out every other weekend at the park together. Good luck with that. They say, well, then I can issue a complaint. You can submit your complaint to the complaint department. And there is a, and they will hand that off to a subcommittee in the complaint department who will analyze your complaint. They will get back to you within 90 days because you have a right, I want you to know, to a quick and speedy response to your inquiries. So they will get back to you within 90 days. And once they get back to you within 90 days, they will tell you that the subcommittee handed that over to the complaint committee inside of the complaint department. And the complaint committee will have 90 days to get back to you once it is handed off to them. And once the complaint committee deals with it, and they determine that there is some validity to them, then they give it to an oversight committee. And it's an independent oversight committee. Now, don't worry, because the independent oversight committee is not, is not, resp it's not responsible to those people who just looked at the complaint. They're independent. See, they're appointed by somebody else. So the independent oversight committee then will take your complaint. And they will look at it, and you have, they'll have 90 days to get back to you by the time all that's done they get done and they maybe hand it off to the assistant director to the deputy assistant to the director of the assistant director of the department of what did I complain about again and see this is what happens when officials are watching over officials and there are higher officials over them justice is denied and there's the denial of righteousness in the land what are we to do with that how do we respond to that why is it here it's here because of sin this is how it has been in every country on the face of the planet, in every civilization, in every time period, wherever there is human government, this exists. It will always exist. It has always existed. It is not fair. It is not just. It is not right. It is not unique to us in the United States. It is something that is universal. It is the universal condition of humanity. And, 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 and why is this the case? Because we don't change. We're not becoming inherently good. Men are not inherently good. No government is inherently good. We're wicked and corrupt. So again, it comes back to the sin issue. This exists and it is the way it is because of sin. And who does the oppressing? According to Solomon, in this context, he's singling out government officials. Now listen, this is as political as I'm going to get. <laughs> I have never, for one day of my life, ever, been oppressed by big oil, by Verizon, by Google, by Apple, by Walmart. Big oil sells me a product that I desire at a price that I agree to when I swipe my card. They have never oppressed me one day in my life. A Vista has never oppressed me. None of these businesses ever oppressed me. I have a volunteer relationship with every last one of those businesses and corporations. None of them have oppressed me one day in my life. But every single day you and I wake up under the watchful eye of an official who is watched over by an official who is watched over by yet more officials and in their hands lies the power to oppress. Big oil has never taken a dime of my money that I have not willingly gave to them. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Walmart, they can't come to my house and take my money by force. They can't do that. None of them have ever oppressed me. Government has. Government does. 
And if you line up all of the abuses of power, the lies, the corruptions, the injustices, the unrighteousnesses, all of them that have taken place in the scope of human history from the beginning of time until this day, the greatest perpetrator of all of that evil and injustice, murders, rapes, and thefts, is at the hands of human government, and there is no close second. No close second. They don't need us to give them more power. It's not the answer. And not to remind us as Christians that the answer to this dilemma and to this oppression does not rest in the hands of government. Don't be shocked at this. When one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them, this is what you get in the land. Now look at verse 9. Verse 9 is kind of an odd verse. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, verse 9 is difficult to translate and difficult to interpret, and it can be taken a number of different ways, which is why, depending on your translation that you have in your lap, you're, it's going to read a little bit differently. I'll give you, I'll read to you a couple of the different translations so you can see how translators have sort of struggled with the Hebrew grammar and the syntax and, and even with the meaning of this verse because it's a little unclear. One of the commentaries that I read said it may be that we will never really understand what Solomon is saying here. But here are our options. Verse 9, According to the King James, the King James translates this way, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. The NIV is similar, but in more, more modern language. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. The ESV, English Standard Version, is a little bit different, and their understanding of what Solomon is getting at here is a little bit different. The ESV renders it this, But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And the NASB, which I've been preaching out of and which many of you have, says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, there are four different translations. The ESV and the NASB kind of take one sort of understanding of it. The King James and the NIV have a different understanding of what Solomon is getting at. Um, here are the two options. There are positive ways of understanding this and a negative way of understanding this. First of all, let me give you the two positive options. First, it is possible that what Solomon is describing here is a king who works for himself. And that would be the King James translation, or I'll, I'll read you the NIV. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. And the idea here, positively speaking, would be that it is an advantage to the land if the king is a man who works for his own sustenance rather than taking it from others. In other words, if you have a man who himself has worked the fields, he has labored in industry, he has worked commercially, he has, he has made himself his own living, and now he rules over other people, that is an advantage to the land. It is an advantage to have a king who, rather than taking from the government largesse to supply his own needs, goes out in the field and works to supply his own needs, rather than taking it from other people. That this is advantageous to the land. That's a positive. This would be Solomon offering a counter to what he has observed in verse 8. It'd be advantage, it'd be advantage for everybody if the king himself simply worked in the field like everybody else. That way the king would understand what it's like to work in the labor, right? To labor for his food rather than just taking it from other people. Uh, in modern terms, this would be the difference between a career politician who has never done anything in the private sector, never built anything, accomplished anything, done anything, as opposed to an individual who has worked his entire life in industry and has made himself his own, uh, his, his own income and doesn't need that in order to rule others. The second positive way of explaining this would be to, to think that what Solomon is describing here is a, it is an advantage to the land when the king himself checks the abuses of other government officials. Some people think that's what Solomon is describing. So you have these government officials who 
They abuse, they take, they rob from other people, they are oppressing the poor. It is an advantage to the land who have a king who oversees this and understands the importance of a cultivated field, and so he checks the oppression that is done by the government officials. That's a second possible explanation. Now, if that's what Solomon is describing, both of those things are true. It is an advantage if the king himself does not take from other people, but himself works to supply for his own needs. It is also an advantage to the land if the king himself sees the oppression that is done by all of these officials watching over officials, and he does something about it and checks the abuse of that power. That is an advantage to the land. That is two positive ways of understanding what Solomon is saying. I don't think he means anything by it positive at all. I think this is in keeping with Solomon's negativity. There is a negative way of understanding this. And this is in keeping with the translation that you see in the, key, the New King, the NIV, in the NIV. And that is, the increase from the land is taken by all, the king himself profits from the fields. Right? So you have a cultivated field. And who is the all in verse 9? The officials who watch over officials who are also watching over other officials, that bureaucracy. The profit from the land is taken by all and the king himself profits from the fields. So what is Solomon saying? You got a beef with being oppressed as a poor person by government officials? Well, you can go to the government official who's watching over the official and on up to the next official over watching him. Keep going up the food chain all the way till you get to the king himself. And what are you going to find? You're going to find that the king himself profits from the field. You're going to find that even the king himself has a vested interest in keeping the system the way that it is because he benefits from it as well. I think this is Solomon's bare and very honest assessment of life as it was in his day. He saw the oppression, he knew what caused it, but did Solomon have the political will to do anything about it? No, he just observes it. This is the way it is. The poor are oppressed by officials who are watched over by officials, who are watched over by other officials, and even the king profits from the system as it is. So you say, what is the answer to this? Give us some hope, something positive, something joyful to walk away from this with, from this, with this morning. I can't do that because Solomon doesn't do anything other than just to observe the inequity as it existed in the land. There's nothing positive about this, except I would say that we can get something positive, but we have to step out of this passage to do it. We have to step out of this passage and realize a couple of things. First, Christian, the answer to this dilemma is not more government. In fact, our salvation and our deliverance from these inequities is not going to come at the hands of the oppressors. Do you understand that? It's not going to be a government policy. It's not going to be the right Supreme Court justice. It's not going to be another government agency, another government act, a piece of legislation, getting the right senators. The answer is not getting our autocrat in the White House who will oppress other people on our behalf for a change. That is how everybody thinks, right? We need to get our guy in there to use the levers of power to, to turn this around. That, that is not the answer. Our salvation does not come in government. It will never come in government. It cannot come in government. It is in a person. Our, our, our answer to this dilemma is in the gospel. And this is what the church and Christians need to be about. Now, am I suggesting that we should not be involved politically or we don't vote or we don't speak out? No, you know me, I do all of that. But I don't think that any of that ultimately is the answer. I believe that we ought to, as good citizens, be involved in doing what we can to check the abuses as far as we can go to check those abuses. But ultimately, our hope is not in those things. We do those things because we love our neighbors and we want to promote human flourishing and do good to others. But ultimately, our hope is in the gospel. 
Our hope is in the gospel to change lives, to change hearts, and to change our culture. And that is what we are looking forward to. The more people be saved, and as a result of that salvation, it might be that some of those government officials who do the oppressing themselves might get changed, and then their hearts might be changed. And if that happens and the oppression is lifted, then so be it. But ultimately, we are about the gospel. And we are not about our political activism or our political endeavors or anything like that. That is not what our focus is. So we have to understand we are not going to solve this. This will not be solved by the forces or by the levers of government or power. Because just as soon as we get our guy in there to make that change, guess what happens to our guy? If you have seen it once, you have seen it a thousand times. Our guy becomes part of the system. And pretty soon we realize even the king himself cultivates or benefits from the cultivated field, right? Also stepping out of this passage, I would, I would call upon you to realize something else. Every time we see an abuse of power by a government official or somebody who is oppressing somebody else or a government bureaucracy or one official watching over another official, when we see this, it ought to immediately direct our hearts and our affections to that coming day when the king will return and will rule in righteousness. We should allow the frustrations of life in this fallen world under oppressive governments everywhere to make us long for the day when Jesus Christ will return and he will destroy all human government and he will set up his own throne in Jerusalem and he will rule and he will reign in righteousness forever. And when he establishes that kingdom, that kingdom will not come to an end. It will not be overthrown and no injustice will be done. That is ultimately what we long for. And every frustration with the inadequacies of human government here ought to fix our hearts and affections on that. Because the answer is not in the opposite, which Solomon deals with in verse 10. Because there are some people who would say, well, then the answer is that I could be rich. And if I could be rich and I could have that influence and I could have that position of power, then I could change something. And if I could only have all that this world offers and if I could be rich, then I could escape all the oppression of the poor. I can, wouldn't have to go through and endure all the things that the poor people have to endure. Well, if that's what you think, Solomon has some words of wisdom for you and you'll have to come back next week because he deals with that idea in verse 10. The solution is not in the riches of this world. It's not in government and it's not in the riches of this world either. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness in giving us your word. We, we marvel at how truthfully it describes the human condition and the results of living in this fallen world. And there is nothing new under the sun. All that has been done is being done today. All that is being done today will be done again tomorrow. And there is truly no relief from this vexing, cyclical cycle of nature and human government and the frustrations that ail us in this fallen world. There is no relief from that save only through the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our desire that you would hasten that day, make it come and make it come quickly, that righteousness may be done. For we know that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And we long for that righteous kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to plan for and prepare for that day, to live in light of that day, to live as if we are living in the light of eternity, and to do all that we can to share the glorious gospel, the truth, so that hearts may be changed and prepared for the kingdom of Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, 
Thank you for listening.